0: Hello, 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 my friends. Welcome back. So it's up to episode three now, and this is a very special episode, a real geeky episode for me. I think you're going to love it. It is for the love of broadcasting with my friend, John Anik. John Anik is the lead play-by-play guy for the UFC, a man that I've looked up to for many, many years. We go into detail about our respective processes and What we find challenging about UFC broadcasts and sports broadcasting imparts some advice to young up-and-comers as well. Let me have a look down at my notes here. Uh, John really did change his trajectory from being a print journalist to then doing studio stuff. A a radio guy I think is what he really wanted to do and ended up being a, a commentator. So just speaking to how a career might meander, it's fascinating to see how John's journey has changed. And those changes have even been sports for John. He started off, I believe, as a football guy and a boxing journalist and then pivoted into mixed martial arts. People in the UK will remember fondly his time on ESPN Live, but he became a play-by-play guy for Bellator 1. And that eventually translated in becoming the number one guy for the UFC in that play-by-play seat. So please enjoy this. It was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it, I guess, because... I could see so much of what uh, I do in, in John's work as well. And, uh, and it was good to chat with him because we're often at opposite ends of the globe. So this is For the Love of Broadcasting with the powerful John Alex. Let's tread back through time. I'm I'm guilty of doing this a lot, kind of chronologically walking back through these things. But I think I can, I'm gonna inject a lot of myself into this interview selfishly because I'm holding the microphone, John, and you know what that's like. Uh, But I know that my personal journey into commentary has not been linear. It wasn't something that I set out to do. You went to school for broadcasting, for journalism, which is something that I can only aspire to be. Were you always looking to get into that play-by-play role?
1: So I think what helped me was knowing that I wanted to work in sports and sports media when I was 15 or 16 years old. Uh, But calling live events wasn't the initial goal or dream. I wanted to be a sports writer. And then that migrated to a sports radio dream, because even though my copy as a print journalist was always clean, there were just far better, more creative writers out there. But I thought when we got into a sports argument in the newsroom, I could, you know, talk my way out of almost anything. So radio became the dream, certainly not television. Uh, But I did eventually, when I was doing a lot of studio work, get that play-by-play bug because I wasn't getting a lot of opportunities to do live events. And after a while, you just feel like a highlight machine sitting on a desk in Bristol, Connecticut. All right, let's take it to Milwaukee where the Brewers hosted the Reds, rinse and repeat a live event is the land, the theater, the unpredictable. So uh, the goal changed along the way, and, and obviously I had to sort of evolve with the dream.
0: I think, and I might be wrong, um, sports fans in the UK might, might say that this is, this is the wrong call, but I, I feel like the play-by-play position in US sports is, is a very coveted role. Uh, it's, it's like the golden egg, they're celebrated, and in the UK, I don't know if it's a British thing, but yes, I, I, I know who those broadcasters are and I've probably been paying much more attention to them in recent times, but they were kind of older and not particularly cool. The presenter, however, was always the guy with the personality and the looks. Um, and I, I actually started out wanting to be a, a, a presenter. But am I, am I on track there by saying in the U.S. there's, there's maybe a little bit more respect and prestige
1: associated with that, that commentary role? I think so. And I think a lot of these guys are lifers, right? It's hard to, to crack in when you talk about the Bob Costas and Jim Nance. And I know those guys have done different things. Costas isn't doing a ton of play-by-play anymore, a little bit with Major League Baseball. But a lot of these guys are there forever. And... Joe Rogan's never been nominated for a sports Emmy in the United States of America, you know, which is insanity to me. You know, I think that's more of a statement about mixed martial arts maybe than it is uh, about Joe or anything else, but uh, it is an old boys club a little bit. I certainly grew up looking up to those guys. And I do think the play by play seat in the United States of America is glorified a little bit. And maybe for me, I felt like I was a dime a dozen sitting on the desk, but I could distinguish myself a little bit more if I was actually calling the live events but big picture, whether it's the UK or Australia or the US, live events are the lifeblood of these sports networks. And for sports fans, that's really what it's all about. I don't even really watch studio shows anymore. Uh, so thankfully, we know by the numbers that the fans are watching these live events more than they're watching anything else. And and you and I are obviously very privileged to uh, to be laying our voice as the soundtrack for a lot of these things.
0: Yeah. And how did that transition go then? Because I, I've uh, we were just talking before I hit record where I've learned the hosting role. It's, it's kind of just, I guess, because you do a bit of hosting when we open up a, a UFC broadcast, which is different to soccer back here in the UK, by the way, you, you don't even know what these commentators look like because they have they have their presentation team. They're almost faceless. Um, right. So I'd learned a couple of bits and pieces, but I did, it, I did it the wrong way around, if you like. How did you go from the studio to then commentary and what
1: sport was it that you you learned your chops well it's actually kind of nice less less on camera stuff right because for me i never really wanted to be on camera so doing play-by-play even though we don't provide a radio call per se because if i'm saying oh on the radio nobody knows what's going on uh but it is kind of nice being off camera but for me uh, it was a natural transition, but I certainly wasn't expectant that it would feel so natural. I was begging everybody at ESPN to get a repetition doing college football or doing college basketball. But those repetitions were few and far between, you know, maybe I'd get a boxing match here or there. But I wasn't getting a whole lot of ESPN. And then in 2009, Bjorn Redney came calling. I had never called a mixed martial arts event in my life. He was starting Bellator Fighting Championship. And I was ESPN's MMA guy at the time, and he offered me season one in 2009. Of course, I was excited. I didn't fancy myself a play-by-play announcer at the time, but I was jumping out of my apartment. I was so (laughs) excited to finally not only have a play-by-play opportunity, but I was getting 10 or 12 shows over 10 or 12 weeks. And I didn't know if I was ready, but I was getting the whole season. So I went to ESPN, and they afforded me the opportunity. And I will never forget sitting down to call Bellator 1 in 2009 because the whole time I'm saying to my wife, I think they got the wrong guy, but this is kind of what I feel like I was meant to do, but I don't know what I'm doing. I have no repetitions to speak of At that point in time, John, I probably hadn't called a live sporting event in two years or so, right? Right. So I sit down and unlike yourself, I'm not a lifelong martial artist. So I'm just saying to myself, my inner monologue, just stick to your strengths, you know, let your skills take over, stay in your lane, less is more, don't speak on your, on your broadcast partner and really round one of the first fight, uh, it probably wasn't easy on the ears to the listener, uh, but I felt very comfortable and was so just good. trying to stay comfortable in my own skin and in my own style. I cringe when I listen back to those fights now but that was sort of how the transition happened. And once I got a taste of it, uh, the studio stuff and the desk stuff really just paled for me in comparison to how electric that seat felt. And I know you can relate.
0: Yeah, for sure. What was the, if you can cast your mind back, what was your biggest takeaway off of that live, that first live event that you did? Not not front front, like a personal performance or sensation type
1: deal. Well, the first mixed martial arts event I ever went to live was really the life-changing experience. I went to Elite XC's first show in 2007, Henzo Gracie versus Frank Shamrock in the main event. Stars up and down the card. I mean, Gina Carano versus Julie Kedzie, uh, Cabbage Cohea taking on Bigfoot Silva, uh, (laughs) AJ Noons and Charles Crazy Horse Bennett, on and on it went. I mean, there was star power up and down that card. But I was going as a boxing journalist with my boxing radio show. And I was kind of anti-MMA at the time. I wanted to dive into boxing head first. And I was blown away watching this sport live because I just enjoyed all of the martial arts coming together. And yeah, there were times where it was grappling on the ground that I didn't know what I was watching and it, it didn't seem super entertaining. But that's the night that everything changed for me. So then two years later, or 18 months later, to get an opportunity to call an MMA event I was just so excited because it was maybe the second or third time I had ever even been to a mixed martial arts show. That's crazy. UFC 87 in 2008, uh, but it was only the second or third MMA show that I had ever attended, so I was just excited to watch the sport live. I think I beat myself up pretty good, though, after the fact. Uh, I don't remember that being a particularly good night. I was happy to have gotten through it, but having listened to some of that back i just was super critical of myself i think the the great benefit was that we went 10 or 12 straight weeks so i got to get back on the horse you know the next wednesday or thursday night and uh that was kind of the saving grace but we're our own worst critics johnny these calls don't sound good back to us that's for sure
0: <laughs> it's, it's actually something i'm going to skip around a little bit why not do, do you listen back to your stuff now? And I say that with sensitivity because your workload is way heavier than mine. And sometimes you go weeks back to back. But generally speaking, is that part of your, your process?
1: A little bit after the fact, but I'd be lying if I said I did it every show. I listen to a ton of your calls, obviously, when I'm doing my film study. And I think It makes me a better play-by-play guy to listen to you and listen to Brendan Fitzgerald. And inevitably, when I'm preparing for the next show, plenty of my calls come in there, so I'm forced to listen to myself. But you get sick of the sound of your own voice. You know, I've said this repeatedly. I am an identical twin. I have a living, breathing human being that sounds exactly like me, has all the same mannerisms. So I get sick of the sound of my own voice. And I've told Kenny Florian, my podcast partner, who doesn't listen back to our podcast, especially in a podcast forum and format, you better listen back to those shows or you're not gonna get any better. So when I'm running, I do try to listen back to the podcast a little bit, even though there's probably much better content out there. But it's an inconvenient truth of the job. Gotta listen to yourself back. And uh, I know for our analysts in DC, we've talked about this. You really need to criticize yourself and, uh, and maximize the opportunity to listen back to yourself because uh, there aren't that many people doing it for you, show in and show out. It is hard though, because I feel like we're cut from the
0: same cloth in that striving for perfection and much like what our fighters and athletes will say, they want the perfect performance as do we. And in one of probably the most unpredictable sports broadcast out there, it's just not realistic. However, we still try and go for it. Right. Um, And I, I, yeah, I find it difficult, you know, beating my I would end up making so many notes and I, and I've, I've spoken to people about this, like coaches, like, yeah, you should do this. And then I look at that and go, this is not doing my well-being. and my confidence much right, good. Right. It's, it's difficult to separate the professional uh, broadcaster from, you know, Johnny G who's sitting there going, oh, this is my favorite sport in the world. And I'm, I'm fucking killing it here in a bad way. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I get that. Um, before I forget as well, you say that uh, your twin sounds like you, etc. The audible thing's funny to me. Have you listened back to early UFC days? And do you find that your voices change tone?
1: I try not to go down that rabbit hole too often, but I did go back and watch my first post-fight interview recently. And it was the first UFC show I ever worked January of 2012. So I did go back and watch the first UFC fight that I ever called. My voice has changed dramatically, and I think you would notice that now between me and my twin brother. He was a, a musical theater major, and he's worked with me to try to use my diaphragm correctly. Right. I can guarantee you use your diaphragm more correctly than I do. Sometimes I will use it correctly, and all right, you're shaking your head. So Sometimes I can tell when I use it correctly. But my voice is damaged. There's probably irreparable damage from voicing the video games. That's when I think I really beat my voice up with all the repetitions and doing a lot of those high amplitude calls when you're not actually in that moment. Like I had to go back for EA Sports UFC 3 and call McGregor Alda, right, that 13 second fight as if I was there. And I feel like I damaged my voice doing that because I was trying to go just so effing nuts that I yeah. think I damaged my voice. So yes, the voice is deeper. I also think that uh, it, my voice has evolved, my style has evolved. So yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm better if I can say that humbly. I don't feel like my, my, my sound is getting worse. But to your point, man, we've never had a perfect show and we never will. And there's certainly some shows when when your bosses aren't thrilled, they stay with you longer than the great ones do. And, and I think that's just sort of a, a cold reality of our business and the seat that we occupy.
0: Yeah, I, I remember listening back to Goldie. I did some stuff with Dan recently where we went back to UFC 38 and listening to his tone compared to what it ended up as like the growl that he had um, that he has right now. And I was, I'm, I'm jealous. Like I think naturally in the UK, we probably sound a little more camp and we probably are yeah. compared to, to our American cousins. And I've never bellowed. It's just not really in me. And it, I laughed right. when he said about the, the musical instrument, the, the performance of the voice, because I did go and get some coaching. And I remember you telling me about someone and I was sure it was your brother. So I'm glad that I, I had that, that recall correct but I went to a, yeah, he was a, 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 an opera, operatic performer. And we would talk about when you take a deep breath for those that are listening to this rather than watching, like don't raise your shoulders with everything you, you keep, so you fill your chest. And we were working on the deflation and how not to expel everything because I was getting into a situation where I was trying to compete with, with Goldie, if you like, in, in that powerful sense. And I'd go into like a hyper, um, hyperventilation mode because I was, yeah. I was coming so hard with with like three or four words, having to inhale and exhale like a like a machine gun approach, and I never had the confidence in the amount of words that one could deliver. And it's something that I think you do so brilliantly. Your your words per breath. <laughs> We're getting statistical here. I think. Yeah. Pound for pound, I think out of all of us, guys, you're able to say so many things without sounding like you're running out of air. So you keep the tone, but you're able to deliver a lot of information. And I think it really shows in your post-fight interviews. How long has it taken to be able to develop that? And again, do you attribute that to that work you did with your brother?
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly helped. And and again, I don't always practice what I preach. And there have been plenty of times where I'm calling the end of a fight. And I look a little bit crazy. And sometimes I am seeing stars, right, because I haven't breathed properly. And again, you're sitting watching a fight. And then all of a sudden, Benil Darius looks like he's going to get knocked out. And then he knocks out your car close and you don't breathe properly. You capstone the moment and I'm either seeing stars or I can't breathe. So I feel your pain when it comes to uh, some of that stuff. But yes, it's ever evolving, right? It's just constant. I mean, there are plenty of parts of this job that are still super challenging for me when I'm voicing over an essay, or like Megan O'Levy, I'm charged with talking while I'm walking. Forget it, right? So I do think you know, there is maybe some natural ability and some fast talking that I've always had in me, but a lot of it is just repetitions. You know, I did go to broadcasting school. I read a prompter for the first time, 17, 18 years ago. So sometimes wisdom does help. Age does help. So I do think now coming up on almost two decades in the business, I've learned how to do that. I also think you mentioned mixed martial arts as a very unique broadcast space that has helped me too, because you have to be efficient, especially in a three-man booth. There isn't always time uh, for you to get everything out there. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a constant evolution. And uh, you know, hopefully we're, we're on the right trajectory. But I appreciate those words, especially from somebody like yourself. You, know?
0: you say about not getting everything out in the three-man booth. And, and again, it's, it's a skill of a, of a good commentator. And it's something that I have to work on because I'm so... Proud of the research effort, and I've uncovered all of these wonderful narratives. That of course I want them to come out. Not, not. It's not an ego thing necessarily. At least I hope it's not. I genuinely love the storytelling and and the backstory of these athletes. But you can't thrust a, a round peg into a square hole. How much of that have you found a challenge in the role as a commentator as well?
1: Well, I don't know what percentage of your research you think you actually get to on the air. I would say maybe 30%, 20% of what I research I'm actually able to get out there on the air. Sometimes the athletes take care of business quickly, and that's just the nature of the beast. But in American football, Johnny, you're getting 40 seconds between plays. Granted, there are some hurry-up offensive things that happen in football that can change the nature of a call. But if a running back runs the ball right into the line of scrimmage, the play clock resets to 40 and you can tell a lot about his childhood in 25 seconds, especially if not much happens in the play before our sport just doesn't afford that time. And it's a real art to bail on a story and then go back to it. When Shane Burgos fights and we want to tell the story about his spine curvature and his scoliosis, you can't do that in eight seconds. And there have been times where I've, started to tell that story maybe had to bail on it how do you get back to it especially in a three-man booth and for you you also have the challenge and I say challenge of being a lifelong martial artist see for me yeah I've taken boxing lessons for years I've done six or eight classes in my day but I don't have a lot of that stuff up there so there's a lot of biographical stuff there's a lot of research but for you you're a martial artist so you have that stuff you have all of your research and then the broadcast challenges and promos so uh Much respect to anybody who sits in the seat, but yeah, you just got to fit it in when you can and just know that despite the fact that, you know, your fight card is filled up, uh, you're probably only getting to to 20, 25% of it. And uh, that's what podcasts are for, I guess.
0: Yeah, exactly that. Um, I I do want to delve a little bit deeper into into the processes, Uh, but before we move on from your career trajectory... When you were signed by the UFC, I remember it was a, it was a moment. You know, Dana was, was up there introducing you. It was a, a, full-on, a full-on deal. It was very cool to see. But you were stepping in to a seat that had been dominated by one man for so very long. And, and you allowed me a, a much more smooth pathway because I wasn't the first one to come after Goldie. I was now, I was now the guy to come after to come after John, Annick. So what was that like? And how did you, how did you take a deep breath and, and prepare yourself for that process?
1: Well, I certainly was thankful to have had those repetitions back in 2009 in terms of the art, because even though, again, a lot of this is just being in the right place at the right time, I, I was ESPN's mixed martial arts guy. I auditioned, got to do MMA Live, and that's what put me on the UFC's radar. Uh, So I was thankful that I had some repetitions calling fights, but I really wasn't thinking a whole lot about Goldie or Rogan or anybody else. You know, I remember Dana White bringing me into his office when I went out for that press conference and he said, just so you know, your haters are going to go through the roof. Uh, you have no idea in terms of social media, what this is going to do for your profile. So be prepared for that. But we didn't hire you to be Mike. We didn't hire you to be Joe. We want you to be yourself. And those words certainly stuck with me. They made me feel wanted, obviously trotting me out at a press conference in Las Vegas. Then I flew home to get my family and came back and moved to Vegas. So I felt very supported. I felt very loved. I never would have left ESPN if I didn't ultimately have the goal to succeed Mike as the number one guy and to call the championship fights, but I wasn't thinking about it at that point in time. I was just thinking about not messing up this well-oiled UFC machine. I was thinking about being a play-by-play guy full-time for the first time in my life, and I was excited about that, uh, but stylistically, Mike and I just couldn't have been more different. Uh, mm-hmm in the way we approach the job and the way we execute the job. So I didn't think there was much of a point of comparison and, and I certainly never tried to be him. You know, people used to ask me, oh, are you going to have a catchphrase or a line that you go to? And that's just never been me. I want each call to be organic and uh you know, that style hasn't failed me yet. But uh, certainly in leaving ESPN, which many in my inner circle didn't want me to do, uh, I left with the ultimate goal that, uh, that, you know, I would be sitting next to Joe or the number one guy and be calling the pay-per-views. Before I forget,
0: we we used to get that ESPN live show in the UK. We don't get any of the, the output. So the UFC live... Um, Shows that we do that, I'm, that that I sometimes get to to work on as well. I don't get to watch them back because they're just not they're not available to us. But I remember that that was that show was so we as fans across the pond we were familiar with you and right. we all love we all love those that have put in the hard yards. Right, yeah. uh, I remember the first time I got rolled out for as like a pundit on BT Sport, despite all the cage warriors work I'd done. All the work grassroots UFC fans, MMA fans, very different. Right. No one knew who I was. I got just decimated. Um, but I thought it was really it was nice that we've been able to see you transition. And and how important do you think that show was? And did you feel like it was an it had this international footprint
1: and therefore gave you more of a warm welcome? Absolutely. No, you hit the nail on the head and took the words right out of my mouth. Were it not for MMA Live? which launched in 2008, I certainly wouldn't be here. And I am so thankful for that support from the UK early on because it kept me through because again, I had a lot of naysayers and I still do, but there were a lot of people coming at me. You know, I got death threats early on in the day. If you ever come do a post fight interview in my city, you know, you'll see what happens. Right. But ESPN-UK, we were on ESPN-UK before we were on ESPN2 in the States. So that definitely gave me traction with fans over there. Michael Bisping hated my guts, right? So he said to – and now we're the best of friends, you know, truly one of my favorite people in the world. But he – and we've had our dust-ups, obviously, professionally, you know, the Colby Covington thing. But, again, we are are as tight as we've ever been. He once said to his wife, Rebecca Bisping, when he was watching MMA Live on ESPN-UK – I don't know what your language. God, I fucking hate John Anik. If I ever see him in person, (laughs) Rebecca, I'm telling you, I'm going to punch him in the face. Right. And I think part of it was because Dan Henderson at times was an analyst on that show. And maybe, maybe once Dan had fun at Mike's expense, I certainly didn't get in on it, but I can understand why my style or my voice or my persona was off putting to some people. I'm glad I got Bisping on the, on the good side now, but certainly, uh, not everybody loved me back in the day, but yeah, without that show, uh, Lorenzo Fertita used to watch that show weekly, and I think that's why I had a, a support system in him early on, and, and maybe that helped facilitate things with the UFC. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's taken me back. It's, it's
0: kind of a nostalgic trip thinking back yeah. to, to the reps on those shows. Um, well, well, let's geek out a little bit, if you don't mind, peeling back the cover on how you go about your process. I find it fascinating looking at commentators from all different sports the way that we have a card system pieces of paper folders etc etc i'm very lucky in the way that i say very lucky i've got to be careful what i say here don't don't want to um, alienate myself but i have a lot of time between shows of course i want to work as as many shows as possible with with the good rotation that we have as our team um so so i think that i get more time to really delve into the card than what you do, because I know you've been, what, I think your record is six back to
1: back. It was five and six weeks, and I literally collapsed in my front door when I got home after that. I can't
0: imagine, I can't imagine. Um, so how does how does it work for you? What's the first thing that you start aiming at when you, uh, you, you start working on these? And, and sorry, I should explain that to people that don't know. We have a lot of program elements, and then we have, the fighter side, or maybe I've just maybe that's just my way. Maybe you see it slightly no, you're right.
1: So, yeah, there's the format stuff, the television stuff, the promos, the brought to you buys, the throwing to features, and then there's the fighter research that I think is obviously the pride and joy for guys like you and me. And I think one thing that can be frustrating in our seat, unlike the analysts, is that we do spend a lot of our time on show formatics and production elements. When we'd love to be spending that time reading one more article or watching one more fight involving the fighters. So when I'm in a back to back situation or a five shows in six weeks, the preparation is totally different. I'm about to go to Jacksonville, Florida and call fights on Saturday and then turn turn back around and call fights on Wednesday. So when I'm in that type of situation. It's not that I shortchange the prep for Wednesday, but there just aren't as many hours. So there is some cramming involved, even though the word cram is very negative in broadcast circles. First thing I do, though, when I get a fight card is I take the UFC generated fighter bio and it's, it's sort of an exhaustive process, but I transfer anything worthwhile from it to my fighter card, right? I have an old fighter card from that fighter. I will cheat off those notes once the new fighter card is complete. Grab anything like Michelle Waterson. I'm working on her card right now. Just quick example on her old card. I have a note that says her father-in-law Javier was in a car accident. He was partially paralyzed and he may never walk again. I think he's walking again, right? So that is something I know. I could be wrong, and I really hope I'm not. But that's something that I'm going to follow up with Michelle on leading up to this fight card, right? So that's the first part of my process. While I'm doing that fighter card. I have, at the very least, their last UFC fight on in the background. I might get to two or three fights of Michelle's before I transition to the red corner and Carla Esparza. Obviously, if I have three weeks to prepare for a show, I can go back and watch Michelle Watterson's UFC debut. I can watch a fight in the middle of her UFC career that's coming up on nine fights. And it can be much more thorough in that way. Uh, So it really depends on, on what the calendar holds. As far as the show formatics, I really try to dive into the fighter prep first. So much changes with the show formatics. Yeah. I to dive into that super early. I burn myself in the ass getting too far ahead of it. So I really focus on the fighters first before transitioning to the formatics. But, uh, you know, hopefully over the course of this hour, Johnny, people understand all that goes into one of these shows yeah. and understand why I can't do all three in Jacksonville, because in our seat, it's almost physically impossible to do that's, three shows in a row.
0: Yeah, and and you're right. The the changes are uh, they um they're they're inevitable, but they break your heart. You know, it's nice. uh, you're heartbroken. Obviously, first and foremost, if for example a fighter's had to pull out, you might even have spoken to that fighter, and you're like, that's awful. And then you you realise that many hours of your work, you as you say, wherever you've started on the card, you might not be all the way through. One of those fighters pulled out. It's like oh shit I have a finite amount of hours I've got to try and make that back up one thing that's interesting though and your cards are handwritten now I reckon that I'm sure this is by design there's probably something scientific but talk me through why you've opted for a handwritten system on those cards and why those cards aren't an a4 or a different size
1: Right. So I guess in a perfect world, if I could find an index card that was a little bit bigger, you see, if you're watching us on video, these can get pretty crowded. And this is a car as far as a card that I haven't added the new notes to yet. So I started the process in 2009. I think I'm a visual learner. I have a little bit of a photographic memory, but big picture, I don't have a great steel trap memory like Joe Rogan or Kenny Florian. So for me, Forcing myself to go through this exhaustive handwriting process helps commit a lot of it to memory once again. Anthony Smith, when I see him, he always jokes that I bring up the Antonio Braga Neto fight in 2013. I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened in that fight, but I've written it down on a fighter card so many goddamn times that I know it happened in Brazil in 2013. So it's helped me with my process. I have been told by a million people to digitize it and to make it easier for myself. You know, I have a fighter card library of thousands of fighters over the years. It's all alphabetized. Uh, But for me, the system hasn't failed me yet. And that's why I've done it that way. I do think eventually I will evolve a little bit. You know, it, it does like the hand definitely gets sore after doing 26 of these. If I'm doing eight or nine hours of handwriting a day, um, but short of you know flying to England and, and spending a day with you and learning your system that probably is a little bit better, uh, I'm probably going to stick with it at least until no. my right hand falls no, off. No.
0: I, I honestly think there is something um, about and I'm, I'm pretty sure about this as well the, the visually and then the, the, the whole action of, of writing things out, when you're connecting it in that way it definitely does ram home the information a a little bit harder. I don't do it that way. Um, I used to, I used to turn a a page like so, divide it down the middle and I would have, and I'd have a table and it would just be a couple of bits and then a bunch of notes underneath it. And then it was Goldie. I I worked a show in Sweden which was a, a hilarious when I think back to it. It was Gustafsson, is um, so that poster right there, actually? It was Gustafsson versus Johnson, and we were doing a dual broadcast. Never go up against um, Goldie and Rogan on a dual broadcast. Yeah, the fans won't like that too yeah. much. Um, anyway, I saw in the format meeting how he did his notes, and he was very kind to even, I didn't want to kind of look over his shoulder. I asked him and... You know, as as a as a good mentor, you know, he he sat me down and said, This is how I do it. And he's basically, I should have it available. Sadly, I don't. He had a bunch of different size boxes on a piece of paper. His piece of paper was a was a unique legal size piece of paper that was bigger than A4, if I remember correctly. And he also used different colours. So I started playing with this this a little bit myself, and now I've I've I know what color I'm looking for, stats are in green, red is the, the nickname, these sorts of things. And, and then the order of which, columns down the side for the stats. It allows my eyes, I'm sure you have that layout as well. But the problem that I have, like what you've just said, you have an old card. You do have to be very careful not to just overwrite and just fill up an old piece of paper. So I, I now duplicate and I put an, a new date and it's something I've only really done in the last year. So I now do have multiple, what I call fighter bios. Right. But I, I'm, I don't want to be lazy, you know, just cause I filled out a pages, we've heard that. Although a lot of the stuff was left on the cutting room floor. It's, you just gotta be careful because people, everyone's got a new story after every month, right? So um, yeah, interesting, interesting how we do that. it differently.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. And I do think some color coding might be the next evolution of my fighter cards. You know, I go red blue, which helps me a lot, obviously for the corners, but I know exactly where the stats are on the car, but I do think some color coding might help. But you bring up an interesting point in terms of a detail about a fighter biographically or something like Shane Burgos. We mentioned the scoliosis. As far as I'm concerned, You can't mention that, like mentioning that every fight. To me, the fact that he is as successful a fighter as he is, given that there was like a 49-degrees curvature of his spine, to me, I'm okay with mentioning that four out of every five fights. Greg Hardy is the best NFL player that we have in the UFC. I'm okay with putting his NFL stats and his accomplishments on my fighter card and mentioning it every time he makes the walk to the octagon. But I do think there are a lot of different ways that you can – you can do it. You know, this is, a, this is a, a football chart, right? And you see sort of some of the color coding there. And again, this is something that, you know, uh, this is the first football chart I ever did in 2011, if you're watching on video, and that has evolved a lot um, when I've done future games. But yeah, I mean, I do think it's incumbent upon us as play-by-play announcers, whether it's on Instagram or whatever it is get it out there to these young play-by-play guys who are trying to figure out a good system, because you and I, I'm sure can learn a lot from each other's systems, um, but maybe we'll never do it the exact same way. Um, you know, but my wife even is like, dude, will you type it out already? You know, she sees (laughs) like the indentation on my, you know, middle finger on my right hand after a while. She's like, what are you doing? But, uh, old-fashioned I may be, I guess, I don't
0: know. No, I, uh, no. I, as I say, I think there's something to it. I think if I had more time, I would like to write down my initial research and then type it up, just so I feel like I've covered that base and hard to measure it though, right? Hard to measure memory, whether that actually right, works right. or not. Right. Um, the other thing we do, and it, the, I don't even know if it's worth us talking about it because people will just not recognize the process, it is the, the formats, like the scripts and, and how we do that because they are they do move around a lot. And I've actually spoken to Brendan. I'm thinking about devising a, like a software so that our scripts, we end up, de- I don't know about you. I know that you leave them late in the day. It, it is unfortunately something that kills my soul. When you feel like you've done what we call a stack, all of our scripts, which might come to 150, 200 pieces of card that go into the broadcast if you move something at the beginning of the broadcast, everything there, it's like a domino effect. It all moves around and you've got to sit there like a surgeon and try and stitch it together because if you get it wrong on the night, you get past the wrong card with the wrong number, you look like a dummy. And, I'm, and it kills me in the 21st century that John, we haven't collectively come up with a software to correct
1: this. Right. So there is definitely a better system. And I hate to keep coming back to American football. But again, when I did a college football game for FS1 in 2015, you show up with all of your athlete preparation, right? You do your little opening on camera. There's no scripts really or anything like that. When you read a promo, they have an iPad, they pull up the promo, and you fucking read it. You know what I mean? So I do think the next evolution for our script process, and I'm trying to simplify this for your listeners and your viewers, the promos won't be a part of that stack, John. So anytime you're supposed to read a promo, our stage manager, Niner, will will hand you that promo card, and that won't be a part of the stack. So I do think eventually the 150 card stacks that we are sending to our producers the night before the fight will be closer to 50 or 60. Um, but it is really, our show is just an entirely different beast than almost anything else in live television sports. And, uh, I mean, I'm almost 10 years in John and I haven't been able to come up with a better system, but I do think that the promos are the first thing that we have to attack.
0: Yeah. Okay. An off air, an off air conversation shall, shall ensue. Um, what else do you do to prepare yourself on perhaps fight day or the day before are you a rituals kind of person uh, do you take a kit to the desk with you what, what does that look like
1: so uh i don't sleep very well on the road for whatever reason um but certainly cardio has been a part of every fight day that i've ever done for the ufc even if it's ufc 221 in perth and i got to be on a treadmill at 2 a.m I got to sweat the day of the show. So that's certainly a part of my pre-fight ritual. I don't eat or drink too much and I don't love to be dehydrated at times on the air, which I definitely am. And sometimes I remember there was a Marlin but Ice knockout where I felt like I was losing consciousness. I was so dehydrated because there aren't always opportunities to go up and and go to the bathroom. you know. So uh, I think I have, I I do have exercise induced asthma. So I have an inhaler, I have lozenges, I have extra, extra contact lenses in case for some reason Rogan whacks me in the eye and one of my contact lenses come out, I'm essentially blind. You know, I have a backup earpiece, a backup IFB. Uh, but that's pretty much it in terms of my fight kits. You know, I show up skin and bones. I mean, my backpack weighs less than two pounds. It just has my, those fighter cards that you see and I try to minimize how much I bring to the arena. But the one thing is, is that when I'm doing a show in New York City and I'm not going to the arena until six o'clock PM, I can't tell you how many times The nugget of information that I will use on that fighter's walk is what I find in the last article I read or the last bit of film I watch before I go to the arena. If you're doing Australia, first thing in the morning, you lose that day. You know, if you're in Vegas, even that show day gets abbreviated. As much as I don't like doing fights deep into the night when we're in New York City, I get all of fight day to just further immerse myself in the fighters. And and that that is a tremendous luxury on show day.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can speak to that as well. I remember doing a cage warriors gig and I, because of the nature of the show, we would all go up in one bus and I hadn't gotten round to everyone. And I remember speaking to these two fighters from the same team and everything they told me, I literally just regurgitated yeah. it. And that was what a couple of hours removed from yeah. the broadcast. It is, I always say to people, you're never done researching never right. ever done you could walk past a dressing room and see something that catches your eye and think that like uh, with, as long as it's not private like i've got to bring this like if there's a guy dancing if, if he or she is dancing in their locker room smiling or you you got to talk about that like you, there's so you're never done you have to keep an open mind the whole way through
1: Right. Now the walkouts are, are something that you and I take very seriously. And I know sometimes our approach is a little bit differently in terms of how we attack that part of our job. As many of our UFC fans know, the play by play guys, the first voice you hear once they come out of the tunnel and they are fonted with the graphic. Now, I don't plan what I'm going to say. And that means I don't always get it perfectly and say exactly what I set out to. I can also tell you is that I better maximize those 10 or 15 seconds because in a three man booth, once I pass the baton to Joe and then Daniel, for example, I may not get it back. Right. (laughs) So when Dominic Cruz is walking to the octagon as one of my best friends in the world, I guess that's neither here nor there, but he hasn't fought since 2016, Johnny. I don't know what the fuck to say. I don't know how to maximize those 15 seconds because it's not enough time to properly describe that sports moment. Um, mm. So that's really something that you and I take seriously. And uh, you know, hopefully the time we put in translates in those 15 valuable seconds.
0: Yeah, I, I do script it. Well, I say script it. Um, our boss has told me about this before because I, when I first joined the UFC, it sounded like I was reading a promo And I've now gotten a bit more skilled, I'd like, uh, hopefully I'm allowed to say, in that I can make it sound like I'm not reading it. But now I'm bullet pointing a lot more. But I was so conscious of that it's such a finite, it's a small time. There's so many steps. I want to squeeze this in. I really think this is the starting point. But I know I've got a race to get there before we turn to something else. Um, and it was just something from doing grassroots stuff as well. It was, the walkout was just such a big thing. I can't really remember why, but it's the opportunity to tell the story. So it's not just fighter X and fighter Y. Give people a reason to, to tune in. Right. Um, so I was, I was guilty of that. And I, I find myself stuttering a little bit if I don't have a little bit prepared. I'm way more fluid with it now but I think that's taken me a long, long time to be able to be confident in those moments where I'd come up with the right points. Because right. otherwise I sit there and slap myself and say, "Ah, oh, you said the wrong bit.
1: Well, I think we're all guilty of sounding scripted at times on the air. I mean, the only thing that I really commit to memory is my pay-per-view open at where, where you know, it's a close-up on my fat face staring into the camera and... <laughs> I am trying to get across a very specific message in 25 seconds or so. But even when that's committed to memory, oftentimes I don't have the exact verbiage on air that I've rehearsed in my hotel room before I've gone there. I just feel like my style and for me, I'm just better when I'm organic and I don't think a lot about it. There's certainly certain fights and walks and situations. Like I remember Demetrius Johnson back in the day when he was chasing history I thought a lot about those walks and words like immortality because I just wanted to provide the right soundtrack. Uh, And Dominic Cruz is obviously a walk that I'm going to, you know, think a lot about uh, because I have a lot of superlatives and uh, a lot of respect for him putting himself in this position. But uh, I don't know, man, I, I don't say, I wouldn't say that I fly by the seat of my pants, but you know, Francis Ngannou, like, I think he's the scariest heavyweight ever, ever. I think he is, He'd be the betting favorite to beat A or DC right now. Um, those are my thoughts when I think about Francis. Scariest, maybe the best heavyweight in the world right now. I don't know what I'll say when, when, when the light ultimately shines on his face.
0: Talk about these moments staring into the camera. Do you still get butterflies?
1: You know, butterflies, I don't know. I mean, like, when I, I'll tell you, when I work the desk, I wish I could get some of those nerves back. I think if you were to hook me up to a heart monitor when I'm on the desk hosting, it's flat. You you know, it's just very calm. So there's definitely a different heart rate component when I'm getting ready to call a pay per view. But I think they're the best of nerves. I mean, certainly not butterflies like when I called my first UFC show or the first Bellator show or was in an ESPN climate controlled studio for the first time. I remember being super nervous with that. But no, I think at this point, it's just excitement uh, and not unlike when Buffer has his moment. The beginning of the pay-per-view is sort of my moment that I, not my moment selfishly ego, hey, look at me, but my moment. That all eyes are on me, and I need to get it right. So that's the most critical part of the broadcast for me. And so maybe, uh, maybe the nerves and, and the heart rate's a little different in that moment. Yeah. Did you have
0: to change your style a little bit, or your approach as the play-by-play when you became when you went from fight nights or FS1, however, whatever the verbiage is, to them being the the the. Um, the pay-per-view guy. Did you have to change that because maybe the audience is different? Anything like that?
1: couple things I would point to. First of all, I went from two-man booths exclusively to a three-man booth. So that really is the biggest adjustment. I got to work in a two-man booth with Rogan three or four times back in the day. But when I took over the pay-per-views in January of 2017, it was a three-man booth right away. So that's been the biggest adjustment for me. It's a totally different job in a three-man booth. Mm -hmm. And certainly when you add in the pay-per-view sales, the pay-per-view job is a a totally different job. As far as my style, the UFC caters to the in-house audience more than any other professional sport. So at the beginning of a pay-per-view, I really have to make sure I have the volume and the energy because I'm competing with in-arena sound. And they're very much concerned about the in-arena stuff. So that's a battle that I wasn't fighting on the UFC fight nights. That's the only thing I can really think of in terms of the performance that I have to really go crazy at the beginning of those pay-per-views to be heard over what is going on in-house.
0: And it's funny, I've seen you open, open the shows and I, and I do the same thing as well. I talk so much with my hands naturally. When I'm punching the open, like I look like a fucking freak. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm I'm literally hitting oh, yeah. like this, but I feel like if you hold it back, you're just stifling yourself. And I know that you get really animated as you use your whole body in in your perf- your performance, if you
1: like. When we do the combo features that we voice at home, when I'm sitting here on this headset, I mean, I am constantly in motion. See, it's right there, beautiful. <laughs> I need one of those pee popper things, but constantly in motion. I'll be very candid with you. When when I was at ESPN radio and they were auditioning some radio people for television, they thought I had like a tick. You know, one of the producers joked, was like, do you have like a mild case of Tourette's syndrome? Because I was constantly doing this on camera. So I'm constantly working to quiet my body down. When I'm doing this single, it's very unnatural for me to be stiff and stoic and speak slowly. So it's been a huge, uh, Challenge for me to quiet my body down, so yeah i 'm going nuts when i 'm doing voiceovers, anything animated, my body is not still at all
0: yeah no that 's very interesting, very interesting. now, I want to talk to you about working with big personalities because uh, it 's it's probably again quite different to other sports they 're not just big sports stars and, and you of course have a, a, a popular culture um, star with with Joe Rogan as well. But these are people that could take your life with you know 10 or 15 seconds of effort right. um, so and they're alpha
1: super alpha
0: right how, how have you managed working with such
1: big personalities well you could take my life too in a minute if you really wanted to Johnny. <laughs> know you that. Know that. it's been amazing now i go back a long time with a lot of these guys now certainly when i first started calling ufc fights with one of my best friends, Kenny Florian, having worked together in TV, that was a very different feel than in 2012 when Mike Goldberg wasn't able to make the walk for UFC 155 and I'm um, spending quality time with Joe Rogan for the first time ever and it's in a broadcast booth on a pay-per-view. So there have been certain times where I've been starstruck or uh, had to navigate it with an A-list celebrity type but it's been wonderful. I mean, you know, these men are just amazing. And as I've said repeatedly on social media, I believe we have the best group of analysts in all of professional sports. I would put our top five or seven in the UFC up against the NFL or any big sport. And I believe our seventh guy is better than their seventh guy on the totem pole. So it's been a joy. Uh, There are different personalities. Every broadcast group is different. I think I've worked with 14 or 15 different combinations at this point in time. There are different egos. There's different word economization. There's different efficiencies. There's all sorts of different things that go on. But at the end of the day, I always come back to Joe Silva telling me to not forget to have fun because as stressful as this broadcast environment is, and he could see the tension in me early on, he would repeatedly say to me, don't forget to have fun tonight. You worked your whole life to have that seat. Might as well have fun. And I really have tried to have that in the back of my mind because as I've said, and you've seen these videos that I do, I've, when I'm walking to the octagon, fun is the last thing on my mind. It's like George St. Pierre going in there to compete. This is work. This is business. After the fact, it's fun to look back at what has happened, but fun is not the emotion. And I've tried to put fun more towards the front, no matter who I'm working with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, well said. Well said. Um, and I think you've done a really good job of, of earning the respect uh, from those guys as well. I think Joe in particular is not someone that I that I know particularly well, but it, I think he can get – you would naturally get magnetised to someone like DC. And in our job, because we have a different engagement with the broadcast rather than just the – what we're seeing with the fight action, it's, it's kind of – it's difficult to always involve yourself. But I, I, I can see it in his body language that you – you truly made that like a three man booth and it, and i and it's it's been wonderful to watch that that evolution and i and i'm sure that and i mean like i, I hope i'm not being unkind to joe in saying that the man worked with one guy's whole broadcast right. career right. and then he's being told he has to work with someone new um so it, and it's going to take some adaption. and and i think just as a credit to the to the team and and probably the producers as well i think it's it just works so great now and that's why they can put in the little um, working man shot
1: like the action cam and get these great reactions right? Right no you bring up a lot of salient points and not only is Joe getting assigned a different play-by-play guy and again we had done three or four shows together but okay you have a new play-by-play guy that you'll work with at times, just the two of you. But by the way, you're now in a three man booth for the first time in 15, 20 years, instead of a two man booth. And I think for Joe to have to navigate that he's had all this real estate for all these years. And now he's having to be deferential to a fighter, oftentimes a champion sitting to his right. But certainly at the top of my list of priorities, when I took over for Goldie January, 2017 was to build a rapport with Joe to make Joe want to do this job forever. And I feel like Joe's having more fun now than he has ever had and and you would have to ask that to him if that's the god's honest truth but I feel like Joe's having a good time in that broadcast booth and that's a big priority for me because I think we're better with him than without him there's just a special feel when he is in that booth and uh he just he embraced me to such an extent right off the bat and uh you know I'm sure even if he didn't voice them to me he had some trepidation early on you know, I can be an acquired taste for some and, and he's really embraced me. So, uh, I don't, I don't rest on my laurels. I don't take that seat to his left for granted. That's for sure. And, and I hope he does it forever. I really do.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He'll go. He'll, it's just, just be such a different product, uh, without Joe Rogan's voice on there, but you're right. We have so many, so many other great voices to compliment as well. They, uh, they do have a tricky job scheduling these with whoever's going to be in those seats. They really do. Um, your standout moments then what moments have you really enjoyed from your personal performance because we're allowed to talk about that john you know it's uh, it's okay to talk about that is there something that we may not even have heard but there's something you're particularly
1: proud of well i do get asked this question a lot and i think as young fathers or i should say fathers for me of young children It's a very great thing because they become the center of your universe, right? So that's been very liberating for me. So I don't have a lot of reflective time to think about myself or historic calls necessarily. The UFC social media account does a good job of jogging my memory at times. I think the first thing that comes to mind and and the poster behind me here uh, from The Art of Fighting kind of illustrates it. Thug Rose beating Joanna Jacek, knocking her out the first time. That's as shocked as I've ever been in the booth. And I think one of our better calls as a three man booth because we all got in there. We all were a part of that historical moment. I'm not sure, humbly, if we could have provided a better context for that moment and how fucking crazy it was. Certainly, what most people remember is DC just Thug Rose, Thug Rose, whatever he was doing, but little things like, Rose Namajunas looking to close the show. I mean, it was, it was literally the most climactic thing that I feel like I've ever seen Octagon side. But big picture, if you listen back to a lot of my calls, I think less is more. You know, when, when Marlon Morais knocked out Jimmy Rivera, you know, Magic Marlon Morais by knockout, you know, Edson Barboza, another one for the real. I mean, these are really simple things that any fan could say. Uh, but I think it's the way you deliver them and at the time, that really makes it special. Obviously, the one I get asked about the most uh, is the, the Ben Askren, Jorge Masvidal. Uh, I think Game Bread's the greatest nickname in our sport. And to be able to, in the moment, just say, like, Game Bread, as in game fucking over, uh, you know, it just popped in my head. And uh, thankfully, I think it dovetailed with the moment. But uh, certainly, it's nice to be able to capstone some title fights after doing the smaller shows for for five years and uh you know hopefully the best is yet to come
0: yeah yeah we love um we love being able to complement these moments right these are memorable moments we certainly don't want to leave a messy footprint on them so it's important to get them right and you're those moments there that you uh that you spoke of were, were great ones they truly were um one thing that we didn't speak about in the process and this might be quite funny for some fans pronunciations um <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I think I might have a different take on that recently through quarantine and what I've been going through. We have a, a, a beloved friend, Lappy. He's he's part of the uh, production staff. He is the pronunciation police. Yeah. Now, I I think it's, it's different for me and you. I, I'm going to say this is harder for me than you. I'm going to take this one, John, because yeah. you and Lappy are both from the States. And I'm obviously this English guy, as I said earlier, more camp. So when we come down to the, these files, the pronunciation of these things and we're given files and we have to try and we listen to it and give our take on it. Sometimes I, I'm like, I've really nailed those combo features that we put in for the broadcast ahead of time. And I get pages of notes come back. It's not said like this. It's like that. And I'm like, what are you hearing?
1: Right. Like, right. that's
0: not what I've heard. Uh, uh, your noddings, which makes me feel better about myself, because it sounds like you two um,
1: feel, feel these challenges. The audio files are open to interpretation. Yeah. Right? There are different interpretations of these files, and I respect people who hear something differently. Mm-hmm. Jelani Jacek will tell you, and a lot of Polish fighters will tell you, that an American like me can't pronounce her name correctly, no matter how hard I try, because I can't move my mouth in that way, because I haven't grown up doing it that way. Yes. You know, So I do think, even though a lot of people feel like I'm the chief of the pronunciation police, that there should be a little bit more of a margin for error and a little bit more wiggle room. At ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut, with Japanese names, when I showed up there 15 years ago, they Americanized Japanese names. So a former Red Sox pitcher, pitcher who's Daisuke Matsuzaka. We were calling him Daisuke. Daisuke instead of Daisuke. The Boston Red Sox sent out a press release to broadcast journalists like me saying, hey, I know you Americanize names there. He's Daisuke. He's not Daisuke. A lot of places will Americanize names. When Stipe fought for the first time in the UFC, he was Stipe Myosic. That drove me crazy. Yeah. That's my you know? <laughs> and people still call him Miochich instead of Miochich, you know? So it has been a huge initiative of mine. I came from ESPN where it was a big focus. We didn't even have a pronunciation guide in uh, Vegas for the UFC at all. So I'm passionate about it. But I hope uh, Lappy can have a little bit of a longer leash with guys like you and me because uh, the effort is always there, but sometimes yeah. they're a little – syllables and little intricacies. And uh, I go back and forth with those guys too, because we do hear things differently.
0: But it's, we have like O's and A's between the borders are quite different. The one that was hilarious for everyone was, was Frank Camacho. So in the UK, it's macho, Frank macho. Camacho. But, but Lappy lost his fucking mind. He's like, what is this? <laughs> but, at the same, but at the same time, like you guys would say John, but my name's John. John, over here. It's and it's completely different, right? So, we I definitely I definitely find those challenges. But I I have to say it is funny. We have so much fun over these things. But it as you, and just to kind of reinforce what you're saying, this comes from the best place. We we want to say these names correctly, but you just you don't have the tongue for it you can't wrap your your tongue around some of these things and now we go into asia as
1: well it's oh it's bonkers but um it's it is so hard i mean we have i think a, he's a Argent, he's from argentina uh Lauriano staropoli you know yes. and i can't tell you probably a quarter of an hour it took me to figure out exactly which syllable in his surname i'm supposed to emphasize yeah but that is the core of what we're really trying to do there are going to be little intricacies. Like it doesn't bother me when you say Frank Camacho at all, the way it bothers right. me, as long as you're emphasizing that second syllable, Camacho, yeah. Camacho. That's what we're going for. And hopefully, you know, it's, uh, oh, Paul Craig, right? Yeah. It's not Paul Craig, it's Paul Craig. Yes. And if you want to get technical, it's Paul Craig. Yes, it will exactly. So yeah. what do you want to hear me say? Yeah. The Americans are annoyed when I say Paul Craig. Right. Scotland's annoyed when I say Paul Craig and rightfully so. So we settled on Paul Craig. Yeah. you know I
0: say Paul Craig. That, that's the way. Go. But then I mean, we'll move on from this. But Rafael dos Anjos, the, mm-hmm. the name file is Rafael Dois Joyce or something. And it's I mean, I've butchered it, by the way. But you know what I'm getting at? There's, there's very there's different. There's these differences. It's um, the
1: actual, the Rio de Janeiro regionalism is. Deutsch Anjoish instead of Dos Anjos. Yeah. Like I taught broadcasting in Boston, Massachusetts. And if anyone knows about the Boston accent, I mean, you should see these kids coming up to do their sports update. And, hey, what's going on? It's Patty O'Connell. Here's your sports update. The Red Sox. <laughs> and it's like, hey man, information's great. But if you want to work in any other city in America, you're going to have to nip that Boston accent in the bud.
0: I want to talk to you about social media because as this is, um, there's a lot to it. I think it's something that we've grown up with. I would imagine it in what, like in our careers rather than as kids. And I know that when I started jumping on Twitter, it was actually the the matchmaker for Cage Warriors that told me, so let's say 2012. <clears throat> so I think as you get on Twitter and, um, and it's, it's probably the, the thing that gives me more anxiety in life than anything else. And I wondered how you deal with social media because I've seen your, your presence on social media grow very, very well. I'm gonna talk about your strategy in a second, but you obviously have to spend a lot of time on it. How do you feel about social media? Because it's great, but then there are the drawbacks and we're in the same kind of job. So I, you, know, you don't have to spell
1: it out to me. I know how it feels. So again, I was at ESPN 12 years ago when they said to all talent, hey, we need you to get a Twitter account, right? Because we're going to font you with your Twitter name. I didn't have MySpace. I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have any of that stuff. So they asked me to get Twitter. I was like, oh, I appreciate that, guys, but I'm good. Just put MMA Live underneath my name, whatever you got to do. And they're like, we need you to get a Twitter account, you know? So Molly Caram helped me set up a Twitter account back in 2009 or whatever. It's an inconvenient truth. I mean, I would agree largely with your thesis statement on it. It does give me anxiety. It is annoying. It's the greatest way for me to connect with fans other than maybe the podcast, which is the best way I find for me to give back to fans. But it is an entirely different language. Social media is. It's a foreign language that I have had to learn. Uh, And I've tried to sort of, get better at it, but you nailed the rub. It's time, it's energy, and people think it's a social fun thing, and my daughters are older than yours, and they see daddy on his phone, maybe on Instagram or Twitter, and even though there is some enjoyment in the back and forth, oftentimes it is work, and there is thought that goes into every post, and you want to have a certain voice coming out of your social media account, And uh, I always used to say, and maybe I've changed this tune a little bit, but as soon as I retire from broadcasting, I'm going to delete that Twitter page, delete that Instagram (laughs) page and just go live an anonymous life because it's work, man. There's no doubt about it to keep a consistent voice and to keep content out there every day.
0: Do Do you treat it as your shop
1: front or
0: are you a little less through a lens than that?
1: So, I mean, I am measured. I'm certainly more measured on social media than I am on my podcast, where maybe I would walk right up to a line that the UFC sets, but not cross it. I'm more measured on social media. You know, I still have people like my mother out there who don't want me dropping the F-bomb. So uh, I'm a little bit more measured. I think if I was just in the opinion business as a sports broadcaster, it would, my social media voice would be very different, right? If I was a radio host who was paid I hours a week to give my opinion, I think it would sound a lot different. But for me, it's been nice. I haven't really needed to establish a personal website. We got com, but it really is me frontally to the world and some people will keep it professional my instagram i feel like is a mix of family stuff and professional stuff i want it to be something that heaven forbid something happens to me my daughters can go back and and look at it even though there'll be a couple things there you know marijuana references that might raise some eyebrows i think for the most part uh it's pretty clean while also being being a, a semblance of who I am. Like I cuss in front of my children. I don't go out of my way to do it. But if I get hit by a bus tomorrow or if COVID-19 gets me, I want them to know who their daddy was. Mm. A passionate guy, little foul languaged at times and so be it. And that's sort of, for the most part, the guy that I try to put out there on, on Twitter.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you with, certainly with Instagram and, and Twitter. I, I mean, I've just had so many conversations recently with people about how I've got to, invest more time into developing my social media and then you need a strategy for it and my wife who actually works in that space is like I don't agree I don't really want you on it it's, it's not always healthy for, not just for me just, just generally now we have a daughter I'm like yeah but I've avoided going all in on it for so long now I feel like I need to at least give it a go if people don't want to hear my opinion then I'll find out from but there's almost a point where you're you have to kind of nail it in a little bit, and I feel like you've you 've measured the temperature, your barometer of it 's really good, and I, see, I I see the work that you 've done particularly on Twitter I think, and, I, and I, like, I like
1: how it looks well, I appreciate that you know we did just hire a chief marketing officer, this guy, Cody Merrow, who handles the social media for my podcast. <clears throat> And he's 26 years old. He speaks this language. And you have a lot of skills from an editing and production standpoint that I don't have. Like I've seen some of the stuff that you've been able to generate out of your home. Maybe you're leaning on Vicky a little bit. But for the most part, you have a lot of skills that can make your feed something really special. Twitter is is a news feed for me in a lot of respects. And I love it, even though it doesn't have the, the usage pattern that Instagram does right now but I'm doing more social media now than I ever have before. And there was a time probably a year or so ago when my agent would text me like, dude, you haven't posted on your Instagram page in two weeks. And it's like, dude, I got a couple of weeks off. I'm hanging out with my kids. Like you want to see me after my workout? And he's like, yes. You know? So it is an inconvenient truth of our business. And I I do think that the sooner that we all embrace it and kind of go all in, the better. But uh, there's definitely a morass of negativity out there too. And uh, you got to shield that part of it as best you can.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd like to kind of wrap this up with some, some positive thoughts for, as you said earlier, the, the younger play-by-play guys that are coming into this one. Um, why would you encourage someone to embark on a journey into commentary?
1: Well, it's tricky, right? I was a print journalist and you see that's my first byline in a newspaper back there on the wall from 2001. You know, I got paid $20 to to write that article and there were plenty of times where I couldn't pay my rent. You know, the last time I couldn't pay my rent was 2003. That's only 17 years ago. So there are going to be some lean years. Internship structure and internship availability is hugely important for our industry, because if you can't go get repetitions and get experience in an unpaid capacity, it's very hard to get that opportunity to to work in sports and to be paid in sports. I remember when I was starting in the industry, Johnny, and I was sending out my resume to TV stations and radio stations, and they all required three to five years of broadcast experience. And I was like, how am I ever going to get three to five years of broadcast experience? I'm never qualified for this job. And every broadcasting job I ever applied for in the traditional way with resume and cover letter, I was applying for a job that on paper, I wasn't credentialed or qualified to have. When that opportunity comes, whether it's on the desk or doing play-by-play, you just have to be ready. I don't know if I was ready for Bellator season one, episode one in 2009, but they did bring me back the following week. And I was probably more ready the following week. You just don't know when those opportunities are going to come when you had your UFC audition to sort of become the guy for us in a major pocket of the world. I know you were the cage warriors guy. I know you had the profile uh, you had a lot of credentials, but you still had to get through that audition. And I feel like getting yourself ready, whether it's establishing a podcast on your own, getting repetitions, even if 15 people are listening, you got to put yourself in position to take advantage because that audition, like it did for me, can come when you least expect it.
0: And this might be a, a quite a difficult question to, to answer. What are like the top three things that people should be aiming to do as a, as a play-by-play commentator? What are, those, what are the three most important ingredients?
1: So unlike other parts or arms of the broadcasting world, play-by-play is a difficult thing to simulate at home. Because you don't have a color commentator and certain things that would be in a more normal broadcast setting. Well, I hadn't done a football game in four years when FS1 called me to do one in 2015. I'm trying to mute the TV and call games, and it just wasn't working that way. So repetitions is absolutely number one. I don't care how you get them, I don't care how low quality it is. You know, I wouldn't put it past someone to go to your daughter's softball game and sit by yourself and to commentate what's going on. You know, there is nothing that can replace repetitions. Uh, Then I think listening to people who are in the space, mentorship, you know, I was never somebody who had a mentor per se in broadcasting. There were certainly guys like Sean McDonough that I tried to model myself after as a play by play guy. And I looked up to him and I studied his style. And even though he was a coworker of mine, I never reached out to him because I was too shy or too introverted. Don't be afraid to, uh, to, to get a mentor. Uh, And content is king. Even for a play-by-play guy, I do believe if you can create content somehow, some way on a channel, even if it's a social media feed and not YouTube, um, then at least it gives somebody something to look at. So I would say repetitions, getting a mentor and content. Um, But big picture for me the hardest thing was getting an internship. The hardest thing was getting an internship at the radio station that I knew I could break through and be on the air at if I could somehow get them to bring me on in an unpaid capacity. So that was the biggest hurdle for me. But uh, those are the three things, I guess, off the top of my head that that I would point to.
0: Nice one. I appreciate that. Um, I want to just finish up by letting people know something that, um, that's important for me, for everyone to know. And that was coming up to my screen test for the UFC, I reached out to you, asked you, and this is someone who I'm entering, I'm, I'm becoming your competition almost, you know, is there is only so many shows a year and I think it works, but um, at the same time, could be seen that way. And I'm so grateful that you didn't approach it in that way, because I'd like people to know that you you gave me a detailed rundown of the the kind of do's and don'ts of the UFC, which really, really helped me against the competition in, those, in that screen test. It was, it just gave me the confidence that I was, these are the right, this was the right track, I'd measured it correctly, and, and then some real good nuggets as well. So I wanna thank you for that. I think it's important for people to know that you're that kind of guy. And it goes back even further, and I don't know if you remember this, and I have such terrible recall, but we jumped in a bus together. I don't, I don't even know, it must, it was a UFC show, and I don't know what I was doing there. Maybe it was this one in Manchester where I was hosting a Q&A, but we ended up in a bus together. It was just you and I, and I was so blessed to have like, your time to myself for a little bit. You had important work to do, but I gave you a bunch of questions and you were good enough to answer them for me again. And I was saying I'm coming at you from like, your seats as well. Yeah. And and you were very kind, and and I think it's just um, yeah, it's important for me that I share that with the world because I hope that I can do the same for other people and other people in our in our position. It's okay to do that.
1: Yeah, well, no, I appreciate you saying that, and I've also appreciated your friendship and admired your work from afar. I think it was October of two thousand thirteen in Manchester. Is actually the first hey, time I. Okay. I I worked a fight night with Rogan actually in a two man booth because I think he was doing a comedy show there. Uh, But I remember that. And I remember future interactions and just having a beer with you at the bar and talking about commentary. See, I think you and I are just closer than Goldie and I ever were. I think there was a friendship that almost developed as you were getting ready for your screen test. you know? So I am acutely aware that anybody could take my job at any given time. There've been plenty of shows that I've auditioned for, titan games with the rock you know i thought i had a great audition didn't get that for whatever reason so there have been plenty of times in my broadcasting career where there has been somebody better or someone more popular or had the better profile or pedigree or whatever it is um i was honored that you reached out you know to be honest with you brendan fitzgerald and dan helley both did the same thing when they were auditioning back in the day and uh You know, I, I think at first I was like, am I supposed to be sending these guys like my exact fighter cards? And it's like, yeah, man, you are, because chances are they're going to have a better system than yours, you know? So I appreciate you saying that, you know, and I wanted to just one thing I knew we're going to chat today that I wanted to bring up that I've learned from you. So when the octagon girls are coming down the steps, right. Sort of a weird navigation. Oh my God, isn't it? It's so so weird. They're all gorgeous, okay? So they're all beautiful. I know them all. I have personal relationships with most of them. But like, what are you supposed to say? There's Ariane Celeste looking as good as ever tonight. So one time I'm watching you back and you said, thank you, Carly. And it was a revelation for me. There, just thank them. When in doubt, just fucking thank them. (laughs) I learned from you and continue to learn from you, but it was just, you kind of deadpanned, you paused and you said, and there's Carly. Thank you very much, Carly Baker. And it's like, there you go. Thank them and move on. Because candidly, we talked about the research earlier in my mind. I'm like, dude, how long are you going to stay on the Octagon girl? I love these people, but like, I only got very limited amount of time to get to the fighter stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so you don't want to be talking about the fighter necessarily when they're showing Carly, but so we're all learning from each other, man. Oh you man, know? that's hilarious. I've
0: always wondered about that. I, I've, and it's like, do I go Carly Baker or just Carly? Cause I know them. And then it's, you know, they're, they're gorgeous women of the world. And like, does it, does it make a difference? And why overthinking these yeah. moments, but at the same time, they have become part of the team. So you don't want to steal that moment from them and talk about something else. And my wife's watching, maybe. So, if I, and I think I remember once, and it got picked up. I think I said the blonde bombshell Carly Baker one time, and it didn't get picked up from home. But I, thought, I just thought, does that sound a bit cheesy and, and like pervy? And like, how do, you, how do you deal with this? So, it's very. It's funny,
1: Red, Red De La Cruz just started working on pay-per-views, and I noticed she posted something on Instagram of me saying, "You know, and here's Red De La Cruz. You know, great to have her as part of the pay-per-view mix tonight." I was just thankful to have something to say. Yeah, that that's a just point. talking about how beautiful these women are. So, back in the day, I was watching film, and I heard you say, "Thank you very much," and it dawned on me: I'm going to steal that from Johnny G, man. <laughs> I'll just thank him when in doubt, and you notice—you'll notice it uh, next Saturday night.
0: Uh, a little wink, a little wink at the screen yeah. for that one. Love it. John, thank you so much for your time. You've been really generous and I've, in, I've enjoyed this greatly. It's a conversation that we've never really had properly. Yeah. And now we've recorded it for others to, to share as well. So appreciate that, mate.
1: There's no one I'd rather chop it up with for an hour or so, my man. And I know our schedules don't often align, but hopefully uh, I'll see you out on the road uh, in the not too distant future, buddy.
0: Yeah, get some good rest. You've got a, a busy time coming up. And uh, yeah, look after that wonderful family of yours. I'll see you soon. Likewise, my man. Thanks, John. Cheers, mate. Thank Take you. Care, buddy. Love you. See ya. How did you enjoy that? So that's the third episode, of course. Please go back and listen to episode one for The Love of Acting with Paul Felder. And then for The Love of Arts with Des Taylor. These are pretty much evergreen. So they're not stamped. They'll always be a, a good listener. I believe they will be. But this one was with John. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I really enjoy dining out on all of the aspects of the job that we do. And there was obviously some in-jokes and some in-detail. But I think that UFC fans in particular will really enjoy hearing that so that they can get an indication of what goes on behind the scenes from our perspective. Do go follow John if you don't already. I'm sure you do. Please share this episode with people so that they can get to listen to John as as maybe you haven't heard him before. But certainly having two UFC commentators talking about their job, I think is a first. So thank you very much for listening. Please give it a like, uh, a subscribe. That'll help me keep this going. It's great to see a new subscriber, etc., pop up on my newsfeed. So uh, very, very grateful for that. Anyway, John and I will actually get to share a beverage together in person because we're both going off to Fight Island. So that's exciting.
1: That's it from me. Thanks very much again for watching.